welcome everyone. I hope the conversations that I have with today's trailblazers inspires you to do more with the platform that you have. I would like to thank Papa John's for sponsoring this episode. They are sponsoring my limited concert series called Pizza Art Songs and Arias. Use the code OPERA to purchase a pizza in DC, Maryland, or Virginia. And Papa John's is going to contribute 25% of total sales to a performing arts organization in this area. It's going to be going on from now through March 31st. It started in January. Our recent guest was Elizabeth Anderson, who is a classical singer in Italy. And we talked about the pandemic, how it's affecting the arts in Italy. We collaborated on a concert for January. So don't forget to go to Papa John's in DC, Maryland, Virginia. Make sure you use the promo code OPERA. And then go to my website and log in and watch the concert while you enjoy your pizza. Our show today, we are going to be talking about equity in the arts. Now, as a classical singer, as a classical singer of color, as a woman, I think these issues are really important that we continue to have these conversations. And of course, now with where we are in our society, it's more important now more than ever before that we start to explore and understand how equity in the arts plays a major role in our communities as well. And so when we talk about that, we're talking about, like I said, civic dialogue. And it's when communities come together to discuss issues and policies that are challenging in many people's lives and in their own communities and in the society. And the arts is such a powerful facilitator for positive dialogue and engagement. And that's going to be really important especially when you go into communities affected with disparity of race or equity, gender. The arts is a vehicle that builds trust in communities. Today's guest, we have Marilyn Gilbert. If you don't know Ms. Gilbert, you will after today's show. Ms. Gilbert is a classical singer and an attorney. She founded Santa Barbara Opera in 1994 with her late husband, Nathan Runlet. The company has staged more than 70 operas and devoted thousands of hours to community outreach, which goes back to what we were talking about civic dialogue in the community and building that trust. The organization remains dedicated to the core passions, celebrating the breadth and beauty of opera and contributing to the cultural enrichment of the Santa Barbara community. Ms. Gilbert earned her undergraduate degree from UCLA in political science and then went on to study law at the Loyola Law School in Los Angeles. Over the period of her active law practice, she represented clients in gender, age, and race discrimination cases against large unions, school districts, cities, and corporations. She also served as a co-chair for the Anti-Defamation Leagues and was a member of the Civil Rights Committee of the Santa Barbara Chapter of the Anti-Defamation League. Part of her duties, she chaired a program entitled Sustenance for Strangers, Breaking Barriers by Breaking Bread. That's beautiful. Bringing together people of all diverse backgrounds in home social settings. Thank you so much, Ms. Gilbert. I'd love to hear more of the wonderful contributions and the changes you've helped to make in law, 
in diversity, in equity, as well as in music. Can you share a little bit about when you were in college, you started a internship program, which is still going on today. I'd love for you to share a little bit about that and then move into your work as an attorney fighting for the rights of, of people, of women, race, color, everything. I was a return student to UCLA because I had been married, divorced, because my first husband was happy to have me stay home and cook and clean, but not sing professionally. So there went the career opportunities then. But that was a small thing, actually, because it's like I tell students sometimes when I go into schools to talk about, what do you want to be when you grow up? I try to tell them, you're not going to be an opera singer, but look for your passion. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter what it is. Find your passion because that's going to be the thing that's going to make you happy. And it doesn't have to be one thing. So that brings me back to how I became a lawyer when I started out life as a singer. So I started out life as a singer with Marilyn Horn and I sang together when we were young singers in The Bartered Bride, which was one of her first roles in the movie Carmen Jones, when she played the voice for Dorothy Dandridge, and I was in the chorus, things of that nature. So it was a wonderful beginning for me. And the typical this, Bridget, because you've been there, you know how when you're young and you want to be this big star, you know how difficult that is, right? It's not just competition, it's just fighting your own fear of appearing before an audience when you're young and all of that kind of stuff. On the other hand, it's great learning for everything, for the courtroom, for example. So after I left my first husband and I was working in Europe, for the military. I worked as a civilian for the U.S. Army and decided to, I was trying also to, uh, to audition, but I found that wasn't going anywhere because after World War II, so many of the young German singers were dead from the war. That's when a lot of American singers got a great opportunity because they didn't have people to sing in their opera houses. Marilyn Horn got her, her chance there. Many others got their chance there. But by the time I got there, this ne next generation of singers, of German singers was coming up and it was very difficult. I'm not saying that was the only reason, but that was one of the reasons. And my mother came to visit me while I'm living in Europe. And she said, you're coming home and you're going back to school. So came off the plane on a Sunday, Monday morning, I was back at UCLA. I don't know how that happened, but it was true. I didn't even have to take an exam. And I still don't know why, because I'd only had one semester 20 years earlier. Imagine this. Started with it. I found out that UCLA had a program of internships in Washington, D.C., and Sacramento. So I became one of the student leaders for the Washington DC program. And I was an intern in the office of a, of a Boston congressman whom I adored, Joe Moakley, who died of leukemia a couple years ago. And in Boston today, you'll see the Superior Courthouse is named the John Joseph Moakley Courthouse because he was such a, a revered person, a, a great congressman. We had congressmen like him in, in Congress today. We wouldn't have a lot of the problems we're having today, okay? To make a longer story short, that was incredible. I was in Washington in 1974, leading 74 UCLA students in their jobs were all over Washington. I won't go into what I did there, but what I became intrigued about was what was going on overseas in other countries. American students didn't know very much about what was going on in the rest of the world. So I came home and I convinced the university we should have a program overseas. And that started the international internship program at UCLA, which is still going on. So that was a long time ago. And we got 20 students placed in positions all over the world for that first year. It was a really exciting time. And from there, I went to law school. Now, why did I do that when I was singing? So back up for a minute. While I was still in school, 
at UCLA, I met the man who became my second husband and was the love of my life. And that's Elizabeth's father, Elizabeth. <laughs> the love of my life, absolutely. And he was a singer. I was a singer. He was a chemistry teacher in high school, taught chemistry and mathematics. I was in school trying to get a degree as a political scientist and then going on to law school. And so we decided we both love to sing. We're going to start. We moved up to Santa Barbara. We said, oh, we're going to start an opera company. And that's what we did. We started an opera company in 19, the end of 1993 with Deflator Mouse. And of course, he was building the set in our garage. Oh, wow. <laughs> He was doing it, was it all, huh? it all. We had to hire all the singers, mm -hmm. the orchestra, everybody. It was an interesting, we didn't really think we were starting an opera company. We were just having a good time, but it was such a success. Mm -hmm. They asked us if we would continue doing it. And so that was nice. the start. Now you asked me about discrimination in the art. Now that's a real subject. Discrimination yeah. in general yeah. is a real subject. I should tell you incidentally, that one of the cases I had as an attorney was against the Ford Aerospace and Communication System here in, up in Vandenberg Air Force Base and was for a black engineer, an incredible man and an incredible employee and how he was treated after seven years of working there. And not only did we win the case, it was the largest jury verdict in Santa Barbara County at that time. And it went on appeal and it was published. So it's still published law in California that if you win your discrimination wow. case on the basis of race in California, you can sue the state for punitive, you can sue the defendant for punitive damages. Not true in every state. That was an exciting time of my life. And in addition, my husband and I were also singing whenever we could. So what did I find? I always felt so much a part of the world of discrimination in a sense, but I did grow up in Pennsylvania. And at that time in Pennsylvania, I was in an elementary school, which was desegregated or whether it was non-segregated. I had, my best friend was a girl who looked a little like you, in fact, and her name was Gladys. She was my best friend. And so for me, growing up that way, I was shocked when I came to California, to be frank, because at that time in California, in the place where we moved to, there was a lot of discrimination against black people. In fact, my nephew, my little nephew, I'll give you an example. I had a housekeeper, not a housekeeper, she just come and clean once a week. Mary was her name, I'll never forget her. And she was black, well, mm -hmm. dark, okay? And my little nephew was about five years old. And one day I had to go out and do some errands and I said, Mary, will you watch Donald while I'm out? And when I came back, she was laughing. She says, well, you have to hear this, what? She says. I was washing the floor and your little nephew was standing there and he was staring at me and he was staring at me and staring at me. And finally he said to me, Mary, do you know you're turning brown? <laughs> it was hysterical, of course. But what it showed in a sense was this terrible separation of people. Now that's always bothered me. Mm -hmm. So in music, what we hope for that music is the universal language, is it not? Doesn't matter what kind of music, almost everyone responds to music. And so it's one of the binding forces that brings us all together as human beings. And so for me to bring that kind of culture together, what I knew about discrimination was a gift for me to do. Now, how successful was it? We have a very, we were mostly using our local singers. When we started, we couldn't afford to bring in the big stars from New York. So we only had a limited number. We did have several black singers in our cast and whenever we could find one, but who am I gonna get from Santa Barbara? 
So we were limited in what we could do, but we always looking for that possibility. And of course, we always had it in our chorus and in our backstage people because they lived here. But finding singers in Santa Barbara was very difficult in the beginning. Now things are changing already. Mm -hmm. I see, and I'm no longer connected with the opera except to support it. I'm not on the board. I'm not a I'm not the mm -hmm. CEO anymore. I'm so on and so forth. But what I see, we have a wonderful fellow who's the general manager now. He's from Greece originally. He's a true humanitarian. And I see already he brings in, he has no difference. He doesn't care if you're black, brown, yellow, or green. He brings in singers and beautiful singers. So I can say I'm really proud that this was the beginning of something that was able to lead to this. What about the rest of the country? What do you think about it? I think that there's a lot of work to be done. I used to never really focus on it growing up because it just, I think there could be no excuses really. My dad was from the Bahamas and we're used to being the majority there people that look like me. Nice. So there was never a issue of what I couldn't do. Oh, I can't do this because of my color, because right. that's not how he was raised. And that's now how he raised me. Being able to pursue that passion was always like, if you like it, go do it, but you have to train for it. And he was more than happy to support that. Both of my parents were, but it really wasn't until after I actually got my first professional job, like it just never crossed my mind about race and where I fit in the industry as far as just being someone of color. Never crossed my mind until my first professional job, which was Porgy and Bess. But that was my first interaction with several African-American singers. That was the first time I realized, oh wait, everyone did not grow up like me as far as how they view the world. Washington, D.C. at the time, it was the chocolate city of the world. It was much in the same way I would see African-American professionals, doctors, lawyers, opera singers, all the time, politicians, in and out. It never crossed my mind about what I couldn't do because I always saw it in my own community. Growing up, my dad, my parents, everybody. So it never really phased me, but it wasn't until I really started working as a classical singer for my first professional job doing Porgy and Bess, the disparity that's out there, what other singers have been going through long before I came in with these, seeing the world through rose-colored glasses. So you were learning this from Yeah, me. they were hating on me. They were like, who is she? <laughs> But that was my experience and I had no problem with it. But as you start to interact more with singers who have faced this, and especially in America, I'll say, it really made me realize like, oh, wow, this is a real, this is a real issue that's out there because now you're talking about the work that so many African-Americans could only get would be Porgy and Bess, which is a great opera. No one's, Leontine Price did it. No sure, one's sure. saying it's an awful opera. But the interesting thing is that opera companies only call when they're doing a Porgy and Bess, when they're doing a showboat. But yet we've been trained to sing the same repertoire as anyone else. And then when you when it comes to opera companies, just huge opera companies, when I was going through college, it was always like, wow, they're only two or three African-American singers on a roster at any given time. 
and it's not it, like Santa Barbara. You, you conduct for the world, you could pick singers. Right. And the interesting thing was that it was always, at the time, it was always a Kathleen Battle, Leontine Price, Jesse Norman. And of course, we had the singers before them. But when I was in college, those were the ones that we would always see for years and years. And it was hard to see. I'm like, do they hire anybody else that looks like me? <laughs> you know? exactly. And my concern now is definitely... It's somewhat of that, but then also seeing the types of operas that are produced, like why does an opera have to be about African-American community or the African-American experience to hire a black director or to hire a singer of color? Like, why can't it like, okay, you're doing the marriage of Figaro. How come it can't like, where's your black director? How come you can't hire somebody? You know what I mean? giving that Absolutely. perspective and not waiting until it's a black opera or a black Absolutely. show or something like that. And that, that still bothers me because I think there was an announcement with one of the opera companies that is just like, oh, we're about trying to re revisit what it means to be inclusive. But then you look at their next season and <laughs> it's an opera about the African-American community. I'm like, no, you're missing the point. <laughs> You're completely missing the point. That's great. And I think that's important, but totally missing the point. And then also you have a lot of conversations that come up over Black History Month. And which is why I wanted to have this conversation now, because I'm like, it's March. <laughs> this is not a once a month kind of conversation. It's a conversation that I really wanted to speak with someone of your stature that is not only performed, but man, you talk the talk and walk the walk. I mean, the mission has always been to promote singers and operas behind the scenes, as well as in front of the audiences that spoke about diversity. And when you speak about diversity, it doesn't, maybe one season, you might not have every single person or a singer of color or a woman in the org or something like that. But I think your overall foundation and mission is really founded upon those principles, right? Absolutely. And it is really working better now than it did even when I was running it, simply because we didn't have the funds to do that we wanted all the time. But he's doing a fabulous job, this guy. And he, mm -hmm. we really do have a very diverse group now, both backstage, on stage, whatever. We don't, as has hoped, we don't look at color. But I want to talk to you for a minute about what I saw in Europe as opposed to what we have in America, okay? Oh, yeah. Just recently, I mentioned to you when we spoke earlier about Bridgerton, mm -hmm. a film that is on Netflix, right? The queen is a woman of color. The queen of mm -hmm. England is a woman of color. We see women dispersed, men and women. The male lead is a man of color, while his beloved is a beautiful blonde girl with blue eyes. And there's no sense that, oh my goodness, these are different kinds of people. These mm -hmm. are just people. Skin mm -hmm. color is different, but we're all the same. A mm -hmm. very, even white is not always white. And that's what You're people not forget. What I, <laughs> not what I would call people often forget that. Right? Yeah. Right. So the difference between what is going on in England and France today and what still exists in America, especially in parts of America, is sometimes discouraging. However, think back a little bit. I 
remember a time, even though I lived in, a, in an integrated neighborhood, went to an integrated school, even so I was aware of the fact that it was very hard for our black citizens to have the same kind of life that I had, but really noticeably so. This is not the same anymore as it was, I hate to tell you how old I am, but look back 60 years, life is really different. Now I'm not saying all is better, but it has moved 100% to what it was 60 years ago. And it's gonna to continue to move. Look what happened, and I'm a Jew, so we share what it's like to know what discrimination yeah. is. Yeah. But look what just happened in France so a few years ago with that newspaper. The first time this happened, 10,000 people marched in France, in Paris. Now they can possibly be all Jewish, which gives us some hope because if there's people who are not black, if there's people who are not brown, if there's people who are not yellow or green and they want equality for all of our citizens, we're moving in the right direction. I think that's important part of the conversation that has just started to seriously, maybe it shifted a while ago, but people it's really in the consciousness of the majority of people now. I really think a lot of this has to do with the fact that now there are so many children and young adults and adults who have friends of a variety of different backgrounds starting to have these important conversations and not being afraid to ask. Now that was an eye-opener for me too because I've talked to a lot of different singers who are white and they tell me for such a long time I always thought not to be mean like, oh, it's not just your problem, but it really is, how can I relate? I can't really relate. So I don't think I should say anything. I was being respectful of not being able to say anything. But now the cool thing is that they're saying, you know what, wait a minute. I don't know much about this topic. What do you think? Like, uh -huh. how does that work? And I love that conversation that's starting to happen now. And being in Washington, D.C., but seeing that change and that conversation that had to happen, not just in the Black community, it had to happen in all ethnicities. You know, what that looks like, what discrimination looks like, because now we're starting to find out, wait a minute, <laughs> I'm a woman. I might not be Black, but I'm a woman. I've been discriminated against. I'm in a meeting and I'm not taken seriously. Absolutely. So people are starting to find that commonality, that common ground, which I think is really important. I think in the arts and especially classical music, there's such a long way to go. And I think people just don't even realize that it exists in our, sometimes a lot of people say, oh, there's a race issue in classical music. But it's interesting is because I don't think there's not, there hasn't been enough exposure to classical music. So it's not taken as, not as seriously, but it's not as important. If you're in the classical community, you find it important. Absolutely. But if you're outside of the classical community, people don't even understand it anyway. So it's kind of like, I guess it's important, but it really... Don't you, don't you think, though, for yourself, part of it, when I think back about, when you see this film, Bridgerton, it'll mm -hmm. explain what I'm about to say. Part of, of the way the world views us individually is how we view ourselves. Yes. So what I noticed when I've lived in Europe is a difference in the way I've seen people of color, doesn't matter whether black or green or whatever, the difference that they see themselves has a different approach to the way other people see them. Yes. Do you understand what yes. I'm saying? That's so important. This is why I started this thing called 
uh, sustenance for strangers, break, because it isn't enough, I think, only, and isn't enough to say, okay, I'm not gonna discriminate anymore. I'm, you know, I'm gonna try to be a, a good, equal person, but so on and so forth. It's not enough. We have to bring people together. Mm-hmm. We have to bring people together so that they can see, we may have different culture, of course, but culture is only part of life. It's not right. all of life. And right. it's what makes life interesting. We can't study the Indians and say, God, isn't that interesting? Yeah. without actually seeing them as people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you this. What does it look like in the, it's, as far as just race, gender, what does that look like when a singer thinks they are experiencing it? How do they know they're experiencing it enough to say something? Because sometimes I feel like it's completely different in the world of opera. And if you go work for an opera company, because oftentimes a singer is in and out for, you know, what, maybe a month, you do the rehearsal, you do the performance, and then you're out of there. But what does that look like for someone who works at an opera company, how do they address the gender issue or race issue or something or other to human resources? And is there a way to address that? As someone who started the opera company at Santa Barbara, how, do you, how did you ever deal with that or address it or say, this is what we're gonna do, this is what we're not gonna be about as a company? Because remember, I was already a lawyer. Oh, right, right. So there <laughs> wasn't getting too much. And, was, and most of the people that I was dealing with knew. That, no, we won't be doing that. No. <laughs> you know, right. They knew where we were coming from day one because they know that was not, it wasn't, it's not only my field, it's my passion, for God's sake. This is what I work for and this is what I believe in. Mm-hmm. So everybody knew that about me. So we knew right away. This is gonna be a company, we're gonna reach out as much as we can to make sure that whatever opportunities we have to offer people, doesn't matter where they come from, what they look like, this is gonna be the company they should come to. Nice, nice. And I think if I had stayed there longer, of course I was there for what? We started at the very end of 93 and left in 2000, so seven years. But if I had stayed there longer, we would have been able to do more because we, when we ended, we were $800,000 in the black. Very unusual <laughs> for a new company. But, oh my goodness. But my, we had other things to do, my husband and me. So we then turned it over to the board and they got another. For a long time, they had a fellow who was pretty good, but I think the guy they have now is really great. So, and, and to keep promoting that, I can see that's happening and that's what I love. But what can we do? I think it's starting to happen as a matter of fact. So we're just at the beginning, I think, of a new era, don't you? Yeah, I think it's definitely at the beginning. It takes Tim Scott, who's a congressman, African-American Republican, to tell you about how many times he's been stopped driving while black. And it's sad, but that's the reality of it. But to have businesses really stand up and even opera companies in this discussion say, what are we going to do? How are we going to do things better? We don't have one person of color on our roster. We don't have one person of color in the orchestra. We only have one woman in the orchestra. How are they going to change well, now, that? Now we have to talk about something where I think we have to start thinking about more seriously 
education. I'm not just talking about education as to teaching people what discrimination is. I'm talking about the lack of good education in America leads to this. Where are they going to get a good education to get a, the kind of education you need to become a great performer? Mm -hmm. Where are you going to get that? Reading a statistic about that, it has declined over the past <laughs> three years, the involvement of African-American, let's say singers in this case. Singers. Orchestra too. Yeah, orchestra and definitely where singers. Are gonna, where are they going to get the education? Where are they going to have the money for the parents to give them the lessons that they need? Without education, so we're not only talking about what has happened because somebody had, doesn't like black people or green people or whatever. We're also talking about the fact that we have to try to figure out a way to help their children get out of poverty. Yeah. You get them out of poverty, get a good education. That alone will help to bring people of color into the arts mm -hmm. because they'll have the opportunity to learn how to be in the arts, to learn to be a backstage engineer or whatever, a costume designer, or a singer, or an orchestra member. How the hell are they gonna learn this if all they're trying to do is figure out where I'm gonna get my next meal? How do singers take that stand in an opera company, and not even a stand really, but just say, have you thought about, or what does your next season look like? Or, or how can you explore that? Or what can I do to outreach more while I'm here singing this lead role? Yeah. I, mm -hmm. What do you think? Well, I wish, oh, darling, I wish I could say something to you that would make any sense, but I've not been in your position. Mm. How can I tell you, in a sense? I never had this problem, right? Mm, I never have, have this problem. I'm a fighter, obviously, mm -hmm. but would I still be a fighter if I was facing the same thing you're facing? I don't know. Mm -hmm. it, it so much depends on what you're willing to sacrifice. I can't say to you, you should do this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because I've not been in your position. How can I dare to tell you, go out and fight, girl? I, because I don't know. That's... I have to be honest, for God's sake. If I was facing the same thing you faced, I don't know how I would behave. Mm -hmm. I don't mm -hmm. even know how I, how I behave now. And incidentally, when I came to Santa Barbara, I was one of three women who actually did trial work. Yeah, yeah, I remember reading that in your bio. Oh my gosh. Only three of us when I first came here, and that was when was that was in 19, 1981. But I started my all practice. I was just a new lawyer. I was one of the only three women actually appearing in court to do trials. Did you even think about that? Okay, yeah, and I've got a job to do. Did you think of it more like that? Or, oh, I've got to show them. Bridget, Bridget honey, I'll tell you. Talk about discrimination against women lawyers, because in this town there weren't very many doing trial work. There mm -hmm. were lawyers, but women lawyers, but not in the courts. Why? Mm -hmm. Four times I had different judges threaten to send me up to the bar for contempt of court. Oh my goodness. Why? Wow. Because I was insistent about my client's rights to try to get in evidence or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And I have a, a voice, a loud voice. Right. Right. Next to me could be screaming at the judge, but he'd never say a word to him. But if I raised my voice to the judge, because it was a your honor, I protest, <laughs> I protest this year. You'll be amazed the amount of discrimination I faced. In fact, I once had a case in federal court for a woman uh, school teacher mm -hmm. in a school district that had never had a woman beyond the classroom in the 17 years of existence. In its 17 years, not one woman, system principal, counselor, assistant, no, just mm. classroom. 
and I was in federal court. And I will never forget, I had to bring in the ACLU to be my co-counsel because the judge that we were assigned to was so discriminatory against me that, that I had to have a male argue the motions that I wrote. Finally, we're gonna get set for trial after four years, finally gonna get a trial date. And I was singing up in Goleta, here in Goleta, north of Santa Barbara. That's uh, an hour from the federal court in Los Angeles. And so I was, I was singing the Mother Superior in The Sound of Music, it was hysterical. And I was worried that the judge would set the trial for the same date that I might be singing up here. But I didn't want to tell him what I was doing because he was such a son of a gun. So when we got there, now you have to know that when you're going to get a trial setting date, the, the clients aren't there. There's nobody there, just the lawyers and the judge. That's it. And you're arguing about what, not arguing, you're just deciding what date everybody's going to be available. Judges never bothered lawyers. If they say, look, Your Honor, I, was, I can't be that month because I'm going to be on vacation with my wife and kids. I haven't had a vacation in 10 years. All this kind of nonsense. I only said to the judge, Your Honor, I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't set the trial date for those two weeks in March, for two weeks in the middle of March. This is what he said to me. What are you in your other life, Miss Gilbert, a woman? Now, on its face, it doesn't sound oh very difficult. You would have said that to one of the male lawyers? No way. What are you in your other life, a man? Can you believe this? You have no idea what I faced. So did I become a fighter? Sure. Why? Because I was discriminated against as a woman in a profession, which at the time was so male dominated. Mm -hmm. Only in the last few years, we see so many women now becoming judges, superior court judges, Supreme Court judges, for God's sake. How long did that take? Yeah. But so did I become mouthy? Probably. I remember there was one case I had where the where I was trying to get this evidence in and finally and the other side kept objecting and the judge kept upholding the objections and I kept trying to change the question. The judge got so angry at me, he sent the jury back to the jury room and he started jumping up and down in his chair. His face turned red. I thought he was going to have a heart attack. He was so mad at me. <laughs> That's funny. Oh my gosh. But Fight, my, fight for my clients' rights? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And would I have fought for myself? Absolutely. Yeah, so, fine. I know it. I know it. <laughs> We've got to start getting rid of all these things that separate us as people. Mm -hmm. The minute we start dividing everybody up, oh, you're African-American, so you belong over here. Oh, you're Chinese-American. It's just a separating tool. You've got to get rid of it. That's You've got so to get true. rid of it. That's a good point. Or That's a really good point. Thing. I don't expect you to come and speak Hebrew with me, for God's mm -hmm. sake. But that doesn't mean I'm not an American. And right. you are too. We start chipping away at all these things that separate us. Mm -hmm. Or we begin to become a nation of Americans. Yeah. Regardless of what you're doing. Ms. Gilbert, I want to say thank you so much for joining me today for today's discussion about equity in the arts. I really appreciate your passion. Like I said before, you talk the talk and walk the walk. Tell us where people can get in touch with you if they want to email you or do you do any more consulting work at all? Tell us a little bit about that and especially your role with discrimination in the arts or equity in the arts because there might be some opera companies out there that are just looking at wow, how can we change this or turn this around? What are some things we can think about? How can people get in touch with you? Bridget, darling, the best advocating that anyone can do, it's certainly my age now, 
I'm heading toward 90, sweetie. So you know. <laughs> I'm great. <laughs> Next week. Yes. Oh my gosh! Congratulations! Oh my gosh! And I have to tell you, I'm still singing. Amazing! Wow! I keep telling my friends when you come to the cemetery after I'm gone, just listen, and you'll hear my voice <laughs> because it seems like I'm going to take it with me. But advocating what you're doing is advocating. Just inviting people to come and, and encourage other people to be the same way. The, the thing I'm doing right now is to try after COVID, by hopefully mm -hmm. by the fall, we can start doing sustenance for strangers again. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to see that carried out all over the country. Yeah, oh, that'd be wonderful. 12 people coming together, different backgrounds. I'm gonna send you all the documentation I have for that. And Please. I hope you'll spread it around. Yes. Complete program, all on tape, all on the computer. Thank you again and shout out to your stepdaughter Elizabeth, who I know is listening. Oh, no, she's not my daughter. You know, right, I you adopted her. her. That's right. Oh, adopted all four of them. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's such. A, that is one of the most beautiful stories I have heard recently. Yeah. It is. Oh my gosh. So, yeah, I know she's listening. So, hi, Elizabeth. <laughs> and um, Elizabeth and I've met when we were doing opera works several years ago <laughs> and you know we just became fast friends I don't think I'd ever met anyone who was so passionate about opera at that at our ages at that time I think we were like 20 19 or 20 and I remember thinking wow she is really into this whole opera scene. <laughs> I think she got infected by both her parents. That's wow, I love it. I love it. It makes it makes so much sense now as I've gotten to know you and Elizabeth even more. And thank goodness for technology throughout this whole thing. Yeah. Um, but thank you again for being with me. I really appreciate it. I've learned so much. If you have any questions, feel free to send me an email if you like. You can send it to 728productions at gmail.com. You can visit my website and find my contact information there, breecooper.net, and also Harbor for the Arts. Thank you again, everybody. Bye-bye.